Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. In 1992, the world's nations came together in Rio de Janeiro for the Earth Summit. It's the nations that cause the most damage that are doing the meetings on it, to the exclusion of the nations that still have tradition ceremonies and Mother Earth spirituality to guide them. Vulnerable nations like Vanuatu, Haiti, Guinea-Bissau, and Mauritius made it clear that climate change affects everyone, and not just in some theoretical future. For them, the threat was imminent, and rich nations needed to help as a matter of principle. The polluter-based principle is a very simple principle. So it's a principle of historical responsibility. And the idea is that if you broke it, you fix it. So you have to pay for those damages that you cause. The Earth Summit resulted in the Climate Change Convention. And in 1995, countries began meeting annually at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP. There have been 27 COPs so far, the most recent one in Cairo. COP27, in just days, our planet's population will cross a new threshold. The eight billionth member of our human family will be born. How will we answer when baby eight billion is old enough to ask, what did you do for our world and for our planet when you had the chance? Vulnerable nations have returned year after year to make it clear again and again that the threat of climate change is no longer imminent. It's here. Struggling against the floodwaters on a self-made raft, men head downstream to higher ground. They're carrying what they've been able to salvage. If you read the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's a lot of really good principles. And 30 years ago, we really could have avoided... if, if. If countries did what they agreed to do, we could have prevented climate change. At the Cairo summit, vulnerable nations finally secured a commitment from rich nations to a loss and damage fund. Although there's still no decision about who should pay for reconstructing seawalls, maintaining levees and recovering from floods. But maybe money isn't even the question when we're talking about human rights, the disappearance of entire nations and ways of life. When we talk about human rights, and if you look at the Declaration on Human Rights, you can link every single one of those to impacts of climate change. We begin this episode in Pakistan's north. In the context of Pakistan, climate change is a water. Either we are facing the floods or we are facing the drought. In 2010, the country faced devastating floods. Approximately 2,000 people died and 20 million people suffered some kind of loss or displacement. In August 2022, Pakistan got nearly three and a half times its average rainfall. It was the wettest August in 60 years. 
people are searching for anything that they can reclaim. Bit by bit they gather their precious finds, crossing the river at its lowest and safest point. Those rains coupled with glacial melt, made worse by global warming, caused floods that raged across the country. This time, 33 million people suffered the consequences. Three months later, parts of the country, especially in the south, are still underwater. So who is responsible? There's a video online of the new Honeymoon Hotel in Swat in Pakistan's north. It sits on the banks of the Swat River. In the background, you can see the snow-capped peaks of the Hindu Kush mountain range. We're calling this episode Nowhere Left to Run, from Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa. The Swat River is normally a calm and meandering slice of ice blue, but in the video, it's gray and muddy. It thunders downstream, engulfing buildings on both sides of the riverbank. The hotel shudders rumbles, then collapses and slides into the river. As the hotel was collapsing, villagers a little more than 200 kilometers downriver from Swat were worried. Their village is known as Bela Number Char, or just Bela. It's a semi-rural area where it had been raining hard for days. It sits right on the bank of the Swat River. Several villagers got urgent phone calls from family further north. The water's coming. Leave if you can. The locals are still picking their way through the rubble. The river is calm again. But people's lives have been upended, and they're not sure if things will ever be the same. Bakhtavara is a widow. She lives with her four sons, who are all laborers. We didn't see the flood water until it was at our door. The riverbank collapsed, and the water flowed into the village and our homes. We ran out of our house, but the, the water was everywhere. The people here helped us. Things are really hard now. We went to my daughter-in-law's family's home and they took care of us, but we were too sad to eat. We were grieving. We came home and our house had been washed away. All we could do was cry. We've lost everything. Before the flood, our life was hard. We are poor people, but we were happy still. Now our house is destroyed. These rooms, these walls... Now it's difficult. house still lies in ruin. She salvages what she can and tries to keep it clean, washing the floors that remain. When she can't deal with being inside her half-destroyed house, she sleeps outside. But there's no peace there either. I'm scared of, of thieves and animals coming in the night because I'm lying out in the open air, under the open sky. I worry all night that I might get attacked, so when morning comes, I feel a little better. Nearby, Bakhtavara's neighbor, Mastertila, is also struggling. 
but in a different way. There was a lot of damage this time. The floods back in 2010 weren't as bad as this. That flood didn't cause this kind of damage. People's homes, their crops, even their entire livelihoods have been destroyed. The water had been rising slowly over two or three days, but on that main day, it all just came at once. When the water reached this tree right here, I knew things were really bad, so then we left the house. A lot of people were doing the same. Some people slept in the cemetery, some left the village, some got stuck on their way. All the villagers were really suffering. Master Dilla was in the mosque when he got a call from a family member in Swat, telling him the water was coming and that it was worse than 2010. Master Dilla gathered his grandkids and the women, but three of his sons were trapped. He took the women and children to a relative's house and stayed for five days. His sons survived. You see here, these are two rooms that collapsed. My crops are ruined, my trees were uprooted and carried away by the water. All my sugarcane crop has been swept away. I planted vegetables, but you can see that nothing is left. Master Tila rebuilt last time, and he says he'll try and rebuild again. Only God can help with crops. We will plant again, and if there is no flood, then our livelihood will return to us. Otherwise, what can we say? The people who live here are good. There are no thieves or crooks or drug addicts. People here have good manners, and some even live abroad. Most of the people here are farmers and laborers, but there are also a lot of educated people, too. Master Thila may be willing to give it another go, but Iftikhar isn't sure there's much left to salvage. Iftikhar is 60 years old and is a social worker. He's also a farmer. He was born and raised in Bela Nambachar, just like his father and his father's father. The land on the other side of the river is really damaged. This old man next to me, he had land on the other side with giant trees. If they had survived, he could have sold them for hundreds of thousands of rupees. The flood dumped so much muck and dirt on him, They've been destroyed. Everything is destroyed now. The land is all ruined. Never mind the houses. The land is useless. The whole village is affected. No one's left untouched. If the car walks across his ruined farmland, Let me show you. Look at this. It's ruined as far as you can see. Can you see all these rocks? This was land we farmed. We grew sugarcane and barley here and we had a good yield. Now it's covered in rocks and silt. And whatever crops remain cannot be used. On the night of the flood, Iftikhar and his wife were standing waist-deep in water. 
Both his daughters-in-law and the grandchildren had already been sent off to safety, but he didn't want to leave his house. At around half past midnight, his wife told him that the deluge appeared to be slowing down. But a half hour later, they were standing chest deep in water. My wife said there are terrifying sounds coming from the water. And I said, this is the day of judgment. And at that moment, my son's room collapsed. If the Har points to the old man who lost his trees on the other side of the river, it was really terrible for people like him who live next to the water, he says. Look around. All you see are stones and rocks. Every structure is damaged or gone. Everything is covered in muck. None of us has the strength to rebuild. The World Bank estimates the loss and damage from the 2022 floods to be approximately $30 billion. That's nearly a tenth of Pakistan's GDP. The country needs over $16 billion for reconstruction, an impossible price tag. So the question of how will Pakistan and other vulnerable countries and people pay for ever-growing loss and damage goes right back to the conversation started by the same vulnerable countries 30 years ago in Rio. COP27 was quite a breakthrough on loss and damage. My name is Julianne Richards, uh, and I've worked on climate change for roughly two decades. Um, I work as an independent consultant right now, and I also... Uh, work with the loss and damage collaboration as an expert for them. Overall, the COP didn't reach the potential that it could have. You know, we didn't take steps forward on phasing out all fossil fuels. Um, There were no concrete steps forward on how we're going to keep warming to 1.5 degrees. But on loss and damage specifically, there was a big breakthrough in that we countries agreed to establish a loss and damage fund. There's no money yet, so there's still lots of fight left to go. Uh, But nonetheless, it was very significant that at COP27 we established a loss and damage fund. As it stands, there's a variety of funds that developing countries can access to help deal with the impact of climate change. But... The bottom line is that it's all of them added together are inadequate, so there's not enough money. Um, They're also complicated. They have lots of um, red tape involved. It's very hard for communities themselves to get access to that fund, if not impossible, those funds. And at the moment, the impacts of climate change fall on those poorest people on the front line of climate impacts who have the least capacity to cope with them. They're the ones paying for the real cost of burning fossil fuels causing climate change. So scale is the first thing. Simplicity of access is another thing. Part of the problem with some of these other programs is that they're largely insurance-based. And the problem with that approach to climate impacts when you're facing extreme impacts, you know, at a great scale with very little resources to deal with it is that insurance is not the answer to the, to that problem. So we need grants-based 
um, solutions, which the loss and damage fund hopefully will be based on. Um, I come from a rich country. I live in Australia. We have a historic responsibility. We are, I think, the third biggest fossil fuel exporter. So not only are we on a per capita basis in the top five of the highest polluters, we export a lot of fossil fuels for other countries to burn. We have a big historical responsibility and a big current emissions footprint. And therefore, we should be paying for loss and damage. And we sit in the Pacific. So, you know, our neighbours are Pacific Islands who are really on the front line of climate impacts, really facing the worst existential crises. So from an Australian point of view, I understand our historical responsibility, our responsibility to pay, and our need to show solidarity for neighbours. But it's still not going to be very much money. Do you know what I mean? Or like on a grand scale of of our GDP, of our income, how much we would have to pay for loss and damage. It's not enormous. If we just taxed the, our fossil fuel industry properly, which we don't, they don't, they pay hardly any taxes in Australia. And in fact, you know, the top 20 fossil fuel extracting companies pay little to no tax here because they uh, shifted all offshore. If we just tax them properly, then we would be able to fund all the loss and damage obligations that we have. So I don't understand why it is so hard for rich countries to come at this concept. My name is Laura Garcia Portela, and I work at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. I work on political philosophy and climate justice, and my work has been um, about loss and damage and the philosophy of climate science linked to loss and damage too. The polluter-based principle is a very simple principle. So it's a principle of historical responsibility. And the idea is that if you broke it, you fix it. So you have to pay for those damages that you cause. Let me just say that I think part of the reason, I'm not a political scientist, but I think part of the reason why the uh, principle has been rejected is because it seems that it's a more... It's a stronger principle for responsibility and probably it's easier to enforce it legally. Now, I think they have been also raising moral arguments against it. At some point in the late 90s, political leaders were also pointing to the fact that countries, polluting countries, could not know about the negative effects of climate change until roughly 1990 with the first publication of the IPCC report. And so they shouldn't be considered culpable for emissions at least 1990. And then that kind of argument can also be extended a bit, you know, saying, for instance, that it was very difficult to shift to a low-carbon economy right after knowing about the, the negative effects of climate change. And so that the um, attributions of responsibility get complicated. And this is the reason why I think states have been so careful not to accept something like the polluter-based principle. I think that trust has been eroded. So you know, 30 years ago, there was a lot of, like if you read the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's a lot of really good principles. There's a lot of grand statements. And and 30 years ago, we really could have avoided, if 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 countries did, what they agreed to do roughly 30 years ago, 
we could have avoided all this drama, we could have prevented climate change, we could be on a much more sustainable pathway through renewables instead of fossil fuels, far fewer climate impacts, you know, maybe maybe none. And the fact that rich countries have really spent those 30 years finding reasons not to make any significant change and trying to shift the blame at the same time is is impossible that that would not undermine trust. Like how could it not? So, you know, that's first of all they've shifted or they've denied that they that they need to reduce emissions. Then when they've acknowledged they need to reduce emissions, they just haven't. And we've used a creative accounting, you know, ridiculous offsets that have no meaning. In Australia, you know, we count avoided land use clearing as some kind of credit we were never going to clear it anyway. You know, just ridiculous accounting shenanigans rather than reducing our emissions and stopping burning fossil fuels. Um, so first of all, you know, not taking the action that needed to be taken and then trying to shift the blame for the impacts that are being felt onto vulnerable countries. It's really, it's morally reprehensible stuff. I'm here to appeal to all parties to rise to this moment and to the greatest challenge that humanity is facing. What will our choice be? We have the power to act or the power to remain passive and do nothing. Our people on this earth deserve better. And what is more, our leaders know better. The choice is ours. What will you do? What will you choose to save? Well, I mean, there's been 10 years worth of arguments about loss and damage, what it is, um, what we call it. And, you know, the I guess the original arguments had compensation in one corner and adaptation in the other. So uh, rich countries have tried to argue that we don't need compensation. What we need, what developing countries need to do is to adapt to climate change, which is part of that resilience argument. Like, you know, the and the it, it comes down to where the responsibility lies. So if you're talking about compensation, then the responsibility lies with the, the person, the country, the industry that caused the problem. If you're talking about resilience or adaptation, the responsibility shifts to the community feeling the impacts. So that's part of where the, the language is used there to direct responsibility. Um, so the rich countries have been trying to inject loss and damage with their own interpretation. Um, and they've, they've done that, you know, they in, introduced the phrase avert, minimise and address loss and damage. And instead of talking about loss and damage, which we had been doing for years, suddenly we were talking about averting, minimising and addressing loss and damage, which is really doing mitigation, doing adaptation and then addressing loss and damage. But they're just trying to minimise their responsibility at every opportunity along the way. Part of the rhetorical jujitsu that rich countries deploy at UN discussions is to push for mechanisms that could ante up the much-needed cash, but without having to pay themselves. Mechanisms like insurance. So insurance very nicely distracts from who caused the problem 
onto the people who are being impacted by the problem. Um, and it's been a long-term playbook of rich countries to do that. So um, they've championed things like insurance. They've tried to talk a lot about adaptation. You know, it's all about how you adapt and how you build your resilience to climate change and to climate impacts, um, all of which ignores that vulnerable countries and vulnerable communities are dealing with impacts on a scale that they have never seen before. So it's not about being able to build your resilience. So the problem is not that there's cyclones and typhoons at a at a historical never-before-seen wind speed, you know, um, rising sea levels causing greater than ever storm surges, m- more rain than we've ever seen before. That's not the problem. The problem is that you don't have insurance, that you haven't built your sea level, your sea walls high enough, that you haven't built your resilience well enough, um, that you, you know, and all these things, that all this pushes responsibility onto the vulnerable countries, onto vulnerable communities, and takes it off of the people who've caused the problem. So insurance is one way to do that. The language of resilience and adaptation is, is another way that rich countries have done that as well. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Shahida Bibi lives with her mother and makes a living by selling the milk from one of her cows. Her mother makes handicrafts. Like the people heard at the beginning of this episode, she also lives in Bela, a rural area in Pakistan's northwest. When the Swat River flooded her village in August 2022, the women and children ran. Shahida Bibi's home escaped damage, but her brother's house was swept away. The men tried to stop the water from coming in, and the women were crying and praying. By the time we heard the morning call to prayer, it seemed as though the water had slowed down. What she and others in her village want now is for the government to realign the river's path and rebuild the embankment. If the government can't do that, then it should move the villagers to a new place. This episode from Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa is called Nowhere Left to Run. Julianne Richards has worked for about two decades specializing in loss and damage associated with climate change. She says part of the challenge has always been the language of blame and burden, as in, 
who does the polluting and who pays the price. The impacts are just now, you know, you can't help but face them. The impacts are now so severe when it comes to climate change. Um, You know, if you look at Pakistan, one third of it being underwater, millions, something like 8 million, 9 million people being displaced by the floods. It is very hard to ignore that. Um, it's very hard to say that Pakistan should have just built its resilience more when you're talking about floods of that scale. Um, so part of it is the consistency and persistence of vulnerable countries, developing countries, civil society, but also sadly a part of it is just that um, climate change is now so severe, the impacts of climate change are so severe that they can't be ignored any longer. I think about Shahida Bibi from Bela, Pakistan, who says if the government can't keep her village from flooding again, then they should just move the villagers to a safer place. Laura Garcia Portela is a philosopher who works on climate justice issues. Do you think it makes any difference if the help comes for pragmatic political reasons or the same help comes from a moral perspective that I owe this and I'm responsible for this? Do you think that that actually affects the quality of the action? So in one sense, if you say, well, these people, for instance, are providing exactly the same help they would provide if they acknowledge their responsibility. Well, in that sense, at least um, justice is being done because people have gotten what they deserve in one sense. But in another sense, they only it's not that they only deserve getting like enough means to cope with climate change, for instance. They also deserve being acknowledged as victims of climate change, as of victims of um, the actions of others, not simply someone that just suffers. I put that point to to a few other people in the course of, of, of having these interviews. And there's a bit of a divide on that where, you know, vulnerable nations to some extent, because for them, the existential crisis is so urgent um, that a lot of people seem to be saying, we can worry about the moral responsibility piece of this down the line. Right now, we just need the, the money and the resources. And this is a common thing, right? We'll see this in conflict resolution. We see this in all kinds of things where uh, the imminent uh, suffering and the imminent crisis um, there's a political resolution to it, but people are left uh, with no real, no real sense of justice for what's been done to them. But at the same time, they're like, okay, well, at least the war is over. At least the conflict is over. Why do you think that's a problem? To, to, to sort of take the political resolution as the main point and we can worry about the moral part of it later. Yeah. I mean, I, if, if we are talking in terms of priority, I could even agree with that, right? Um, I understand that people who are suffering the consequences of climate change right now, what they want is, well, to to have the problem, the most immediate problem solved. I can understand that. But I think, well, there are two problems to it. The first one is the one I, I just mentioned, that there is also a, a recognition that is lost if we don't push for these kind of arguments. And the second one is that it sets a bad historical precedent Right, because if now nations are not able to um, admit the responsibility for climate change, what's going to 
be the next problem they are not um, willing to take responsibility for for and this this never ends do you think reparation is a useful word yeah i think it's a bit um it can be taken as although it has generally some connection with historical responsibility and in that sense i'm comfortable with the word Reparations can also be taken as um, things you just do to solve a problem, right? Like as if one repairs a bike, one repairs also a problem and that's it. But it is true that historically people have linked it to historical responsibility. So I'm I'm okay with that. I kind of like more rectifying, rectifying an injustice more than repairing an injustice because it puts a bit more emphasis in the action that the other person has done. Language everywhere is very powerful. Language in the UN is very powerful. I think that we've recently seen Nicola Sturgeon stepping up and using climate justice language. She used the reparation term. She used compensation. That opened a lot of space for other countries to come in and talk about their responsibilities. Um, so in, in, in that recent one-year experience, it was useful. It was helpful. It helped create space. It created progress. So for me, for me, I think, for me, the important thing is that we actually get funds in a loss and damage fund that are adequate, that are predictable, that are there, you know, provided on at scale consistently. They're not on the basis of charity. So that's part of the problem with the existing humanitarian system. It's all about charity. It's all about being a nice country. If you're a good country, you'll give money. But we can't run climate change, loss and damage like that because it's it's not like that. Like there are a group of countries and industry, the fossil fuel industry, who have caused this problem. It hasn't just happened by accident. They've known they're causing it. They've known for 30 years that they're causing it and they've done little or nothing to reduce their emissions and stop it. And now there are people on the front line of those impacts. So we need to make sure that that money is there. I don't have the answer as to whether using language like reparations would be more likely to get those funds in there in a predictable and at scale way or whether using language like reparations throws the politics out enough that we're less likely to get the funds there at scale and in a predictable way. I, I, I lean towards the idea that we can, we'll be more successful without using reparations because it's, it's a red flag in countries like the US, which have a high historical responsibility, so need to provide quite a lot of funds and are a very rich country. But, yeah, it feels like the politics will work better if we use the slightly more bloodless loss and damage terminology, um, if we set things up on a polluter pays and a historical responsibility basis, they're very, that's very strong language to me, which means reparations without actually using the word reparations. We talk about loss and damage. We talk about compensation. We talk about reparation. Um, and I think each of these terms carries a different moral tenor to it. You talk in your piece about um, the burdens of symbolic reparation. Can you just define what you mean by the burdens of, of symbolic reparation and what does that, how does that figure into the argument that you're making? Yeah, so the symbolic 
dimension has also, also two aspects. One symbolic dimension of climate justice is acknowledging that someone has caused certain harm. So the acknowledgement part or even the apologies that may follow from that acknowledgement is, is a symbolic part of climate justice. And then the second aspect is that many of the damages or losses caused by climate change are symbolic damages in the sense that they affect the survival of certain um, cultures, for instance, uh, or even certain nations. And acknowledging the value of what has been lost culturally, for instance, is, is also part of the symbolic dimensions of, of climate justice. The South Pacific nation of Vanuatu has been on the front line of climate negotiation going back to the Earth Summit three decades ago, when it was a founding chair of the Alliance of Small Island States, AOSIS, which pushed the issue of compensation for island nations feeling the impact of climate change. The initiative was turned down. My name is Christopher Bartlett, and I am the Climate Diplomacy Manager of the government of Vanuatu, based at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You are probably aware Vanuatu is one of the most climate vulnerable nations on the planet. We are a small island developing state, a recently graduated least developed country, and are located uh, in the South Pacific Ocean. And we are exposed to an entire range of climate hazards, from Category 5 almost annual cyclones to uh, prolonged droughts, extensive rainfall, uh, ocean acidification, coral bleaching, uh, sea level rise, and the list goes on and on. Uh, Unfortunately, Vanuatu uh, is suffering the impacts of climate change without having contributed to the cause. Our emissions are less than 0.0016% of global emissions. It's a country that's very much dependent on natural resources uh, for basic uh, human survival. We use our traditional gardens and our coral reefs as a source of food and rainwater as a source of drinking. And so as climate impacts directly affect those natural resources, so too do our basic fundamental human rights begin to be undermined. Uh, At this point, uh, we are looking at extreme uh, and catastrophic changes to our livelihood systems. And uh, this is being experienced uh, by every single community, every single household, um, women and children, who for many, many uh, years have not understood why their well-established systems of livelihood are uh, changing. At the 2022 Climate Conference in Cairo, Vanuatu submitted a draft resolution to the UN General Assembly on behalf of a group of vulnerable states. The resolution is a request to the International Court of Justice for a legal opinion about the obligation of all states to prioritize human rights while working toward climate justice. There is a great emphasis globally at the moment on human rights and climate change, but it seems that there's very little clarity on what the obligations of states are to protect human rights from the adverse effects of climate change. This initiative uh, started in 2019 
it was actually a group of young Pacific Island law students at the University of the South Pacific, who in examining the various legal frameworks uh, globally, regionally, and nationally, realized that there was a lack of clarification. And the world's highest authority on international law is in fact the United Nations International Court of Justice. Uh, it is the only UN principal organ that has yet to be given an opportunity to provide solutions to the climate crisis. And this is not a question about the obligations of some states and not others. It's all states have obligations to protect people uh, and protect human rights. But how does the climate change element fit into that? And so the resolution has been taken from a very Pacific focused context, now uh, including uh, members of this drafting group from Latin America as well. Uh, the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, and even Europe have uh, uh, joined their 18 countries to, to develop the draft, which was released just a few days ago. So all UN member states will have the opportunity to uh, provide feedback and suggestions on the draft. And then it will go to a vote at the General Assembly in which a simple majority would be sufficient to pass the question onto the International Court of Justice. The end result would be a non-binding but still important step toward climate justice. Christopher Bartlett believes shifting the climate change conversation away from an us and them, or rich country versus poor country, and centering it on human rights puts people first and could yield better results. I think language is critical. Um, the language that's been used in the climate spaces tends to focus on the emissions. Emissions are not a very relatable thing. Uh, we talk about tons of carbon. Uh, we talk about degrees of, of Celsius. Uh, but th those are not things that people can relate to on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is why I think shifting the narrative to talk about people and communities and human rights and food security and water security, these are things that not only people are relating to, but also politicians can find political will uh, to support. I think we use these narratives about uh, human rights and climate change uh, without specificity that's required to see action. So Vanuatu, as I've mentioned, is not an emitter. And we're also a signatory to all of these conventions and treaties. And you would think that maybe we didn't have very many obligations, but in our own review that we undertook as a part of this process, we realized that there are substantial things that we must do, should do, that we weren't doing before because we hadn't taken the time to really delve into what those obligations were. So as a result of that review, uh, several things happened. The first was that we revised and enhanced our nationally determined contribution, putting human rights and social justice at the front and center of our commitments to the Paris Agreement, not mitigation, not adaptation, but human rights and social justice. And we also reconsidered our own government investments into climate change. And in the 2023 fiscal budget, which was just passed uh, a month ago, there is now an investment of more than 15% of our national budget into addressing 
the impacts of climate change in a socially just way. So big changes can happen when you understand better uh, what those obligations are that you've signed up to uh, under international law. But the question remains, if the science is clear and has been for decades, yet polluter nations choose to place the burden on vulnerable nations, will clarifying moral obligations make any difference? The answer, maybe. I think what we've seen in the last several years is that the devastating impacts of climate change are not just being felt in the small island developing states or in the developing world, but rather communities, women, children, uh, vulnerable people in the richest and most developed countries are now suffering. And this focus on understanding obligations to protect those people and protect the rights of those people fall on all of us. So it's not just an issue of trying to support or provide um, resources to the developing world, but it's how can each state do better for its own people. And I think this is uh, really an important uh, consideration of unity as we address what is a global climate crisis where impacts of climate change know no boundaries. This is now an opportunity where even the highest emitting richest developed nations in the world can do better to protect their own people. And I think there's a very strong uh, push now by uh, grassroots communities in all nations. And at the end of the day, I think governments are expected to address the needs of their people. And this would benefit this understanding, this clarification uh, would benefit every country on the planet without any enforcement required from an external force but rather as an internal motivation to do for their people. Vanuatu is already leading by example. One Category 5 cyclone that recently hit us cost around 600 million U.S. dollars in losses and damages, and that was to schools and um, agriculture and to infrastructure. The support that we received from the international community uh, reached about 50 million. So there was a a funding gap, say, of 550 million U.S. dollars. And that was met not just by the government of Vanuatu, although you know, we, we had to uh, substantially invest in, in recovery and repair and relief, but by and large by the people of Vanuatu who were not at all responsible for this climate-induced catastrophic storm. And so this is where uh, changes have been made in terms of new uh, regulation, new policy that protects and ensures that that level of damage, destruction and loss is minimized as much as possible. Uh, so in, in Vanuatu, for example, um, looking at building codes to make sure that as we build new schools and hospitals, they're done in the most resilient way. It looks at our agricultural extension processes so that we're not promoting uh, monoculture crops that are particularly uh, vulnerable to extended drought, but we're looking at uh, mixed systems with uh, different uh, uh, tolerances to different climatic uh, regimes. It means that we're focusing especially now on the rights of women and children to be a part of the climate and development planning in their communities by decentralizing a lot of those uh, decisions that were previously taken at the capital level 
uh, down to the area council and down to uh, women's and youth groups. So really changing the way that um, governance of the nation is done to ensure that um, fundamental human rights and social justice take the center stage. Yeah, look, Vanuatu was the founding chair of the Alliance of Small Island States. And it was Vanuatu and EOSIS that very first called for compensation related to impacts of sea level rise, because it uh, already at that point was becoming an existential issue for many of our member states. And here we are 30 plus years after that call in 1991, which didn't make it, by the way, into the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Here we are 30 years later, and we're now experiencing uh, catastrophic impacts. And that's largely because we have failed to mitigate, we've failed to stabilize greenhouse gases, which was the entire uh, intention of the UNFCCC. And we've failed to mobilize the resources sufficient to adapt. I mean, there is not unlimited time. Science is so clear that 1.5 is a threshold beyond which we're no longer safe to live on this planet. I mean, if we're experiencing the level of devastation in 2022 and we're only at 1.1, 1.2 degrees, can you imagine the world that we will all be living in in 1.5? And so this is a very important reason why Vanuatu is taking this initiative to go to the International Court of Justice because it's insufficient to hope for voluntary, uh, purely altruistic contributions to the to the crisis. What we really need to know now is what the boundaries of law say is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. Uh, and it's not just this ICJ initiative. Vanuatu is leading with a range of other countries on other things that are now trying to get to the heart of addressing the problem. There is a uh, a push to establish a new treaty which looks at the source of climate change being fossil fuels. Uh, The fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty would have as its goal to phase out the production of fossil fuels, not just the emissions, the result of use, but actually the production in the same way the nuclear non-proliferation treaty intended to to phase out the production of those weapons. Uh, Vanuatu is also looking to add a new crime to the Rome statutes that would um, clarify what ecocide uh, means as as a crime against humanity. And a range of other initiatives were um, looking at how we can uh, um, consider our maritime boundaries as our land is lost, um, would we then lose our economic zones, our oceanic economic zones? Uh, and so we're trying to now change the, the rules to say, well, we're still states, even though if s- the seawater covers us, we don't lose that territorial integrity. So a whole range of initiatives now um, being done in the legal spaces, but also in in political and and action spaces to recognize that we are out of time. We are truly, well and truly past out of time. And uh, we we must now address this crisis um, for the benefit of of the people living on the planet today and those that are not yet yet born. (laughs) 
Iftikhar, the 60-year-old social worker from Bela Number Char in northwest Pakistan, is worried about the future. His land is ruined. His house is half destroyed. He's not sure if he'll ever recover. What we need most is for the government to rebuild the protection wall. We need this boundary built. Without it, we won't survive. If we have that protection wall, we'll be safe. I'm 60 years old now, but when I see the clouds and I see the rain, I get terrified like a child. Soon the cold months will pass and the rains will come again. There could be floods again. I remember that terrible night and I got scared. We need the rain and pray for it. But it becomes a difficulty too. We only hope that God will help us. Climate change is the single greatest threat, as articulated by Vanuatu and the leaders of the Pacific. And we have no other option but to fight as hard as we can to protect this planet. We are small. We are 300,000 people. But every single one of us has lived reality of what climate change will mean for every other person on the planet. If it's not today, then it will be tomorrow. And it's our, you know, contribution to humanity that we need to bring a change in, in the way that you know, sustainable development unfolds. And so it, it is absolutely our highest foreign policy priority is to make uh, a difference in, in climate action and ambition. You've been listening to Nowhere Left to Run. Thanks to Laura Garcia Portella, political philosopher studying climate justice at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. Christopher Bartlett, climate diplomacy manager of the government of Vanuatu based at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And Julianne Richards, independent consultant working on issues of loss and damage linked to climate change. Pakistan field recordings by reporter Nick Amal Utmani. This episode was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.